Welcome to Shiro's Journey, a podcast for Shiro's and the people who love them. Episode one, listening to the ordinary world and starting the journey. I'm Pamela Prather, and for over 20 years, I've been empowering actors, executives, and curious humans with tools to unlock their voices and tell their stories. Along the way, I found that for me, voice is about more than just how I speak. It's a spiritual journey. It's about connecting my inner voice to the outer world. It's about breath, resonance, and deep listening. It's how I show up every day as a coach, a mom, a friend, a sister, a poetic soul, and a passionate human. The structure of Shiro's Journey podcast is loosely based on the path outlined by Joseph Campbell in his book, The Hero's Journey, but it's from a woman's perspective. And in each episode, I talk with awesome Shiro's as they answer the call to adventure, battle the dragons, and ultimately win. Plus, there is a segment called Me and the Kid, a chat with my 11-year-old son that allows us to experience the world through the open eyes and candid voice of my kiddo. I hope you'll find inspiration, fuel, and even a little laughter as you imagine how you can amplify your own journey in the world. Hello, friends. I can't tell you how happy I am that you are joining the Shiro's Journey adventure with me. Welcome to my first podcast. Woohoo! <laughs> As some of you know, Shiro's Journey has been a passion project of mine for years, and I'm finally getting it off the ground. Today's episode focuses on stage one of the Shiro's Journey, and it's the place of beginning, seeing where you are and imagining the future. And this year is full of beginnings for me. In addition to this podcast, I'm starting my sabbatical, I'm writing a book, and I'm homeschooling my 11-year-old son. I can only imagine that with all of the quantum changes that COVID-19 has sparked, you've got to have some of your own beginnings too. And I really look forward to engaging with you and hearing about what you're doing. So I have a little confession to make, and maybe some of you can relate to this. I have a love-hate relationship with social media, but um, let me stick to the positive. And what I love is seeing what friends are up to. And I got really excited when I saw that Tiffany Rochelle Stewart was also at the beginning of one of her journeys. Tiffany is a biracial, Black-identifying Broadway and television actress and an NYU professor. And recently, she's the co-creator of her own passion project called The Listening. Now, Tiffany created The Listening in response to the resurgent national conversation around race and racism and the need that she saw for white people to lean in to a conversation that often goes unspoken around whiteness, allyship, and responsibility. The Listening is a Zoom-based program that is co-facilitated with Tiffany's white-identifying partner, Tyler Rivenbark, in which they are teaching white allies in a way that not only challenges and galvanizes, but also emboldens and empowers. In Tiffany's words, The Listening seeks to educate not only about what white people can and must do, but also about the mental, psychological, and paradigm-shifting considerations 
that white allies must be willing to accept in order to be able to do the work necessary to dismantle the racist systems that their privilege perpetuates. The veil is being lifted powerfully for the listening attendees who are leaving invigorated and inspired to finally do the real work. You can find out about upcoming offerings on Instagram at the listening 2020, and there will be links and additional info in the show notes on how you can get involved if you'd like to. But for now, just find a quiet place to chill out and enjoy my interview with the awesome Shiro, Tiffany Rochelle Stewart. Just to give a little bit of context as to who created the listening, and then I'll talk about what the listening is. I'm a biracial black woman. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, grew up in Montgomery, Alabama. I dealt with racism my entire life from within my own family. And then as I grew up and saw that things were different for me because of the color of my skin and the world made it very clear to me that there were different rules for black and brown people. I went through life kind of saying, okay, I'm going to push against the tide and learning all the different ways that I had to push against the tide, that I had to be excellent. I wasn't allowed to be good enough to get that opportunity or that scholarship or that place because even when I came into Yale School of Drama, around the time I came in, in 2004, there, there wasn't, you know, an unlimited amount of black people being accepted, right? There were 10 men, six women, and maybe one or two of those women would be black women. So I knew when I auditioned for Yale School of Drama, I wasn't auditioning for one of six spots, which if I was a white woman, maybe I would be auditioning for one of six spots. I was auditioning for one of one or one of two at best. <laughs> and it was like a Christmas miracle for me when I got into Yale and I also got into NYU that year to pursue my actor training. So I've been this person experiencing the world and the challenges that are in it for black and brown people and the challenges that are in it for women on top of that, um, which I could speak a lot to later. And fast forward, I, I've now been with my partner, Tyler Rivenbark, who is a playwright and educator for three and a half years. And he is a straight white man that singularly actionizes his role and his responsibility in the fight against racism, understanding his white privilege in a way that I have never seen another white ally do in my entire life. I've seen him actionize his allyship and allyship can be a loaded word, right? And we can talk about that too, but. Yeah, just a, uh, maybe just a moment to kind of define that in the way that you're using ally. So I'm using ally specifically in terms of like, if someone's saying I'm an ally in this fight against racism, for me to be an ally is it's a verb. It means you don't feel empathy and feel outrage and do nothing. That's not an ally. If you're an ally in the fight against racism, now mind you, racism is dealing blows and throwing punches at me and every other black person I know every single day. So this is an active fight I'm engaged in, not by choice, just because of being born, right? If you as a white person want to ally in this fight and stand in the fight with me, 
that means that you have to do a lot of things. You have to be willing to see racism in all its casual, insidious, and tragic forms. You have to be willing to hear racism. You have to refuse to be silent, even at Thanksgiving, when your family member says that racist thing and you just wanna keep the peace. You have to do something. Because when you do nothing, but you're saying, I'm an ally, I'm standing in the fight with Tiffany against racism, of course I am. But if you do nothing, you weren't standing in the fight with me. You stood there in the boxing ring with racism and you looked away in all those moments where you stayed silent and did nothing. And you let racism hit me because every time a, a white person who feels they are anti-racist doesn't speak against racism when they see it happening, they are affirming the racism that is happening in the room. They're affirming the white-centered, uh, white supremacy that's happening. And so this is what I mean when I say ally. So, you know, ever since I met Tyler, and we never would have got together romantically if he wasn't this type of person, right? This is who he is. So when the national conversation around racism split open about five weeks ago, after the murder of George Floyd and the horrific video that came out, you know, the conversation snowballed for the nation. And the conversation, I think even, you know, people globally leaned in to see like, what's America gonna do, right? Because we had Trayvon Martin's tragedy. And then it was, it was intense and it was, um, it was, everybody was very vocal and outraged. And then the nation kind of went back to sleep and then, you know, we've had many tragedies since then, but it feels like with George Floyd's murder, the conversation has been louder, particularly for me, from the conversation I see happening among white people, the amount of outrage among my white friends and colleagues. But I also see an impasse between white people who want to do better, who want to know how can I be in this fight with you? What can I do better? What does being an ally really mean? I see an impasse between those people and the black people around them that are saying, listen, I don't have the bandwidth to teach you. I'm exhausted. I'm in grief. I don't come over here asking me what to do and what to say and what on all the different places you can donate, right? And so I deeply relate to that <laughs> to that exhaustion and that pain. And I also see that there are people who identify as white who can do a lot better in their own community to fight racism. Because I think there's a conversation that needs to happen within the white community for the fight against racism to really progress, right? And black people and brown people cannot carry the burden of the fight against racism completely on our backs because we are also suffering from it constantly. So there, there's a work that white allies have to understand that they have to take on. And it's actually not even a conversation with your black friend, it's a conversation with your white uncle. It's a conversation with your white leadership at your job. It's those conversations. And so me and my partner created the listening. And the listening is a safe space that we have created to have the difficult and delicate conversation with white allies about what allyship really means and about all the discomfort and the messiness that people are feeling 
that quite frankly paralyzes them from sometimes doing more than they could because they're too afraid of like saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing or confronting somebody. And we are teaching people the language, the tools, the internal considerations that have to happen before you go correct anybody else. If you don't understand your own whiteness and that the world has been blessing you with a little bit of white privilege and white supremacy on a platter since you were born, there's no way you can go say anything to your uncle. But we're teaching people to do that internal work and not crumble from it. You're not a terrible person because you haven't recognized your privilege fully. But now you can take this knowledge and go forward and do something better and do something different and actually stand in the fight against racism. And ultimately, do I want to be doing all of this? No, because I'm a black woman who's exhausted myself. But I want, I want my black and brown siblings to have to carry this fight less. And the only way we're going to do that is if our white siblings step up and internalize some of this stuff and embrace the fear and the discomfort and, and learn new tools and move forward powerfully. So that's what the listening is. And that's what that's uh, kind of where that stemmed from for both of us, for me and Tyler. So what I love about what you just said is that I think there are a lot of white allies out there or ally wannabes who are not sure what to do. They feel like they have this whole huge kind of master's program of research to do before even showing up in the room and, you know, not wanting to offend people and things like that. So I'm curious how you and your partner are kind of helping those people navigate. And also is, is the listening a place for parents and for people who are like really also overstretched, maybe at obviously not under the same pressure as a black mother would be, but maybe you know, single white mothers or <laughs> whatever who are out there and they want to teach their kids, but they're, you know, and they want to be active, but they're not sure what, what can we do? So tell me a little bit more about how the listening can help your allies and ally wannabes who might feel like, oh my God, am I, do I, should I even show up? Will I be shamed or something like that? You know? Yeah. So a lot of people don't enter into the conversation about race, racism and allyship because they're afraid of doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, or being humiliated. And, you know, sometimes I think, to be honest, if you haven't had to deal with that conversation, because as a white person, you have been insulated from the conversation in a way that no black or brown person has ever had the luxury of being insulated. So anytime anybody says something that might sound edgy to you about your perspective, white fragility which uh, author Robin D'Angelo wrote a whole book about it. It, it. it explodes all over you and it feels like you've been attacked, right? Because someone says, hey, I think you need to think about this differently. Or, hey, um, that actually was inappropriate. Can I tell you what would be appropriate? And we, we tend to, I think white allies can shut down and pull back and say, okay, I just, I'm not going to have the conversation. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. Right. And so a large part of what we are teaching people is that this conversation is messy. Racism has, I mean, if you think about racism really as an opponent in a fight in a boxing ring, this opponent is huge and it's generational and it's historical and it's casual and it's insidious 
and it's stealthy and it's tragic and it knows how to shape shift, right? It knows how to live in institutions and it knows how to live one-on-one. -on -one. It knows how to murder people and it knows how to make me earn less money than you would make. Racism makes it so that, because when people say, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a white person that, you know, I don't feel like I've been a rich white person. I don't know what privilege I have. Here's the privilege you have, white mother. If you and I both go into the same hospital to give birth, say we go into a hospital right here in New York City, I am 12 times more likely to die of pregnancy or birth-related complications than you are, simply because I am a brown woman. Those are facts. Those are statistics. Black and brown mothers are not treated the same in the healthcare system and people have died for it and those deaths have been documented. So there's, when you start to stand in your allyship, you start to see things that you've never seen before because you didn't have to see them because the world never said to you, you needed to. I have to see them because the stuff has just fallen on my head, right? And I'm having to navigate it. But it can be a very empowering thing when you're an ally that starts to see, oh, dang, I didn't know that that, is, that was the mortality rate for women of color. But yeah, it's about people making choices. And that's, that's the big thing that we're teaching white allies is like, it's actually not this mountain that's impossible to climb over, right? You are not going to swipe racism away. Because remember, right. we see that this opponent is historical and massive, right? But what you can do is make choices that you have the power to make on a daily basis. And when you do that, you dismantle racism. And if enough people dismantle the pieces that are holding this racist house up, then guess what? Eventually the house will fall, but it's going to take everybody dismantling a piece. One choice, one day at a time. If everybody gets tired and goes to sleep and is too uncomfortable, well, then now your silence is holding the house up. And now our children are going to be in the same place we were in. And that just can't happen. Well, I think storytelling is always such a helpful way to land messages. And, you know, I think we do live in a society where there, you know, the Generation Z is quite, quite interesting generation that many of us are working with that have never grown up without social media or without computers and things like this, where there is a lot of instant gratification and it's got to happen today or I don't know. Right. So as a dancer, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you don't jump in and know all the choreography like in a minute. You have to, you know, learn a piece at a time and then you're ready to open the show, you know. And so. I think that's such an important message, too, because I do think people feel like we have to do everything now or nothing matters. <laughs> right. right. And that's just not how any change with racism has ever happened. And it's not how it's going to happen. And for any white person to think I did this one thing, it kind of didn't go great. This conversation I tried to have this this moment where I confronted the racism I see in my life. And so now, you know what? I'm too tired. I'm too hurt. Woe is me. I'm kind of done with being in the fight. For me, I would say to all of my friends and colleagues and anyone considers who considers themselves an ally, how dare you? Because I don't get to leave this fight. So you're going to continue to call yourself an ally, but you're going to leave me here by myself to fight this alone? When you know that you are benefiting from your privilege in this system every day, 
that can't happen. Well, you can't go back to sleep, right? You can't go back to sleep. How are you working with your partner in the listening to encourage the idea of sustaining action, right? Continuing to, you know, how do you get that that Gatorade at that 10 mile, 15 mile, 20 mile marker to keep you up so you don't just give up and quit the race? I mean, to be honest, it's an individual journey, right? Like the hero's journey, the shero's journey. It's an individual journey. So I can't give you enough inspiration in the world to care about this by the end of 2020. I can't. I just can't. If you and your body don't decide that it matters enough to you to speak up every time you hear something racist said or see something racist or white centered or white supremacist done, then that is something you're going to have to take to your grave. I can't do that work for you. I can give you tools, knowledge, a space to grapple with your fears and a space to help knock your fears out of the way with you, which again, I as a black woman do not have to do that. But I do believe in radical communication. I do know I'm an educator, I'm an artist. I have the ability to have this conversation with people and I am making the bandwidth. But what I can't do is, I can't do the work for you six months from now. I can't even do it for you a week from now. I'm doing my part and now you have to do your part. In part two of our interview, Tiffany comes back to share some of her personal strategies for dealing with judgment, overcoming negative self-talk, and educating our kids about anti-racism. So this is going to be a bit more personal, okay? But I believe that um, I'm made stronger because of the places that I've come through in my journey, and I am not afraid to talk about them. So I got married my last year of graduate school. And about three years into that marriage, maybe even two years, I started to feel down in my bones that this was not the place for me. And that I'm not going to say anything disparaging about my partner, but that we weren't right for each other because I could feel that if I stayed here, I was going to die as a person. The thing that pulled me through, and this, this was two things. The thing that made me really turn a corner and say, you know what? We've been toiling here for four and a half plus years. I really, I really, the, the therapy's not working. I'm dying here. We have to do something different. The thing that made that choice for me is I knew that we were around the time where we had said we wanted to start trying for a child. And I have always known that part of my life is to raise some little magical person one day. And the thought of that person being in a pot where their mother was dying on the vine, it made everything very clear. Because my mother was a single mother of four and went through a lot with her husbands. And I was like, what? I can't do that. I'm not going to put my child in the same thing that I had to watch my mom go through. So that was a big one. And then the other thing that kind of, it was almost like a tugboat, like pulling me through was... For some reason, I started to imagine myself, my 70-year-old Tiffany, and I started to hear her voice, and I became very clear that she was rooting for me. She was fighting for me, and that the choices I make now will 
lead to her or not lead to her. That strong, uh, vulnerable, wide, humorous, wrinkled lady who is like, I made it. I made the tough choices and I'm here in my authenticity. And I heard her voice very clearly and I and she pulled me through. She helped me make the tough decisions and go through all the pain and all the failure and all the therapy and and I got on the other side. And that was just one journey of many. That is such a resonant journey though for so many women and I remember you and I chatting a little bit about this at one point together because I'm a single mom too as you know. And I feel like it's so inspirational to tune into that inner voice, right? And I'm curious how you tune into that voice. So my fears and my doubts, I do not run away from them. I listen to them, I see them, I feel them, and maybe my boogeyman of fear or doubt or worry or anxiety, maybe it needs me to fight it and it needs me to find my strength, okay. And maybe it needs me to hug it and listen to it and ask why, like, why, why are you feeling that? Like, what, what are you worried about? What's going on? Can I hug you? Can I hold you for a little while? Can we both just feel bad together? And then maybe we'll feel better. But what I don't do is because that all of those parts of us, they're just parts of us inside that are asking for us to listen to them. And so when I lean in and listen, then I hear myself. I am able to be with the parts that hurt and are messy so that I can be authentically with the parts that are strong. I think so often people pretend strength because they're terrified that if they are with the parts that are messy and where the ground is shifting underneath you, that they're just going to crumble. That life is this tide and it comes in and it comes out and it comes in and it comes out. And you learn how just not to be thrown into oblivion every single time something happens um, with some really negative narratives about yourself. You learn how to say, all right, the tide shifted today. This is a rough one. Okay, here we go. But I'm going to be able to stand up in this water. I'm going to be able to stand up. It's going to hurt. That's all right. I'll be able to stand up. Pema Chodron is an author who, a dear friend who you know from grad school, Emily Dorsch, slid me one of Pema Chodron's books, When Things Fall Apart, when I was going through my divorce. And I remember we were out getting drinks and I like burst into tears because I was like, oh my God, I'm, a, I'm an actor who just got to New York. I'm going through a divorce. How am I going to support myself? I'm going to be homeless. I was telling Emily, I'm like, I know I'm going to be homeless. I'm sure of it. Mind you, I was never homeless. Okay. I started working like gangbusters as soon as we divorced, probably because I was more in my authenticity. <laughs> but she slid me that book and I started reading Pema Chodron that day and have been reading her ever since. And all she talks about is living with uncertainty and change. And it's, it's so much of what I believe in and how I live now. Well, Pema Chodron, one of my favorite things that she talks about is befriending, right? And it sounds to me like you befriended and are continuing to befriend your own vulnerability, your own fears. And in doing so, you're able to create a safe, authentic space for your students and also for the listening, you know, community, perhaps is more a way of saying that. Yeah, I'm preaching to people that it's possible to be with the messiness of conversations about race. It's possible to be with the messiness of 
your own inner critic as an artist, right? Which is what I'm constantly dealing with with my students. It's, it's possible to be with all of that and be okay. What you have to interrogate at some point is if you're gonna be running scared your entire life. Like I'd rather walk my boogeyman out and look him in the face. So at least I can see what's standing here with me, right? Don't just have your boogeyman on your back all day, whispering terrible things into your ear and paralyzing you. Walk it out in front of you and look at it and then let it walk beside you. And probably you're gonna feel less burdened as you walk and you're gonna look over and it's not even gonna be there at some point. How do you deal with judgment? Self-judgment, judgment of others, even judgment around you know, the big issues of the day, you know, around racism and, and anti-racism and allyship. Judgment is a thing that we, we tend to, it has this kind of paralyzing effect for us. So sometimes we prejudge who we are, what we're going to say, what we're going to do. We prejudge it. And because we're judging ourselves so hard, we just shut the heck up and we paralyze ourselves. And then sometimes we receive judgment from the outside. And instead of staying malleable, right, saying, you know what, I just disagree with that judgment. So I think I'm going to be okay. We get really angry. We get really rigid in our position. We lash out at the other person. We let ourselves get triggered. And listen, I'm guilty of that too. We all, we all are. And then self-judgment is this interesting thing. You know, I like to think of um, that thing that scratches at a lot of people to lose weight as an example. Because in that moment where you're thinking, oh, God, I need to lose some weight. You're, you've made a judgment. You've made a judgment that what you are as you are, something's wrong with it, okay? And then we can do one of two things. We can either spiral the narrative that something's wrong with us and we should feel like crap and we should treat ourselves like crap because something's wrong with us. And we can try to make positive changes from that negative place, which we usually don't. Or we can say, all right, well, my truth is like, I am judging myself. I do kind of want this part of my body to be different. Or I just want to feel more energy or whatever. That is what I'm feeling. Can I create a narrative that doesn't paralyze me and punish me? Even from that place of judgment, can I say, all right, I think I want something to be different. And I, you know, I think I want it to be different because like, I love myself and I want to love my life more. And I want to love my body more. All right. Well, that's a little positive thing. And then how can we go a little further past that? What's like one way I can kind of love myself tomorrow? Let me drink a couple more glasses of water. As opposed to spinning in the other direction of the negative narrative and just continuing to hit yourself on the head with judgment. I don't know how we make positive changes from that. Well, I think this kind of can be taken back into this whole idea of the listening and of the white allyship where I think many white uh, allies and ally wannabes are feeling judgmental towards themselves and paralyzed, right? And what I hear you saying is, well, all you need to do is start and look at a positive as in, well, maybe as a, as a mother, I decide to get really curious about how I can help healthcare for black women, or maybe uh, I get really curious about how I can help educate my child differently so that he knows or she knows what Juneteenth means. Yeah. And part of 
you know, and I just want to speak to, because you brought up children a couple of times. Mm. We actually have had parents come to the listening with their kids. And I'll make sure to share the email for how people can contact us if we're in, they're interested. Fantastic. In. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes for sure. But yeah, we've had people come with, like, we even had a mother there, one of our second or third sessions with her 10-year-old. And she said they stayed up all night talking about this stuff. One thing that we tell parents is like, make, you know, if you, if you want to do this work with your kids, part of it's about decentering whiteness. You know, that's a big point of racist infrastructure is that there's an unwillingness to see that whiteness has been made mainstream, right? When it does that, it ostracizes everyone else and it marginalizes everyone else. So how do we decenter whiteness? Well, I can uh, give my child diverse dolls. I can give my child books that are extremely diverse. I can, and diverse in all the ways, not just black and white, but in all the ways, gender and everything. Two mommies, two daddies, all of it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I can teach my children about black excellence as much as I do about slavery, right? That's very, very important. So what are some of your goals looking forward as we, as you imagine your, your journeys? And as I said, you know, start moving from the, this uh, beginning of the listening and whatever other beginnings you might have. I'm curious what, what you're looking forward to as you imagine yourself, your 70 yeah. year old self is talking to you. <laughs> I- I've been very happy with the kind of work that I've been doing in my career as an actress the last several years. I feel like for several years now, I've been teaching the industry how to see me. So I'm not going to be, I've just told casting directors flat out, I'm not auditioning for that role in that Shakespeare play, or I'm not taking that offer to play that role because the women are depicted in paltry, trite, stereotypes and I'm not going to do that with my body. What I will do is I'll play this male role. Would you like to see me audition for that? And nine times out of 10, they're like, absolutely. Right. I do have a production. I had two productions this year that got pushed to next year because of COVID. One of which I don't think I can share yet because they haven't shared it publicly, but it's at a big theater in New York. And it's going to be a very important production um, that should be happening in the spring of next year. Well, we'll definitely put those things in notes as they show up, too. So yeah, cool. definitely. Yeah. And then the other one, uh, I probably, maybe I can't say where it's happening, but it's a production of Midsummer where I may be playing Helena and Bottom. Both. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm, I feel excited about my career. There's always things as an actor you're like, when is this one going to happen? But again, being intimate with my boogeyman, I'm here for the ride. I'm kind of here for all of it. I don't have any suppositions that because I'm an actor, somehow this isn't supposed to be hard for me. When my mother worked 70 hours a week to take care of four children by herself, somehow this is all supposed to not feel hard. And, and no, it's okay if it feels hard. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. And the listening, you know, me and Tyler started off Uh, proposing three sessions. We made the offer to the white community. We're going to do three sessions that blew up that kind of snowballed very quickly. We had like a thousand people contacting us. We're now doing private sessions with companies and organizations. We've been asked to kind of decolonize some of the drama departments um, that people work inside of. 
So we're doing a lot of that type of work now. And, you know, my hope for the listening is that people keep listening. I mean, we'll keep doing it as long as people keep coming to the table. And we hope that happens for a long time. I have a feeling that this is just the beginning of the important and necessary work that Tiffany and Tyler are going to be doing in the world. I'll include additional info in the show notes, and you can find them on Instagram at the Listening 2020. Now, coming up, me and the kid, where you get my 11-year-old son's perspective on starting new journeys. So here's the thing, Harrison. I want to talk with you about... Mom, 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 what you have to do is you have to say, hi, I'm Pamela Prather. I'm going to be, you have to introduce your podcast and then say, we, my guest on this podcast today is my son, blah, blah, blah. That's what you do. <laughs> do you know how to run a podcast? I know more than you. <laughs> no, so, I listen to me. So, yeah, I'm listening to you. I'm talking to you about what the topic is, which is about the ordinary world. Why don't you introduce my podcast? Hi, here's our podcast. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> okay, so it's about starting a journey, which is what we're starting, right? In a way, I'm starting my sabbatical, but mm-hmm. you're also starting a year of learning, learning, uh, being on the road, mm-hmm. homeschooling, or yep. we were going to do world schooling, but totally. uh, now we'll see. We'll see. We're going to do some camping. Cool state things camping like that. in in house. So, question that I have for you is like, what is it like from a kid's perspective to start something new? Well, it's um, starting something new from a kid's perspective is very um, it's easier than a um, than I I believe than a grown up starting something new, and it's harder and at the same time because. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kids develop habits very uh, easily, and it's hard for them to get out of it. So if I have been going to school every day with my friends for seven years, it's a little bit hard to start something new because I had that as a habit. But also it's easier once I get out of that habit to keep learning more, less than just kind of staying in one space. What are you excited about, about learning something new? Oh, I'm really excited about um, trying to get two grades ahead of, um, ahead uh, instead of um, just completing sixth grade in this year. I want to be able to complete seventh grade. Um, and when I come back, I'll still be in seventh grade with anybody, even though ever with everybody, even though I'll actually be at an eighth grade level. Well, that's exciting. That's a big goal. What are some of the things that you know that you have to do when you're taking on big goals or big challenges or maybe advice for people? My advice is definitely make sure to have a good big goal, but also just like if you're on a, on a soccer field, don't shoot from so far away that you're never going to make it. Oh, be smart about where you shoot from, and eventually if you are smart and where you shoot from, you'll eventually score. That's great advice, sweetie. That's awesome. So what are the things that you're noticing a lot of people are starting to think about and care about these days, maybe more than they used to think about? Well, I definitely think many people are thinking more about, um, many people are thinking more, much more about uh, 
like being super duper safe um around washing hands and stuff i bet you if i went uh back in time in a time machine three years ago and i was like hey uh you should put on a mask and wash your hands someone would say i'm crazy mm. um and say i'm i'm just at whole foods what am i doing why why would i do that and then now everyone's like oh yes totally you got to do that in fact you should probably hand sanitize them and you should probably um you should probably have spare masks and more gloves now now it's just um people a lot more self-aware about their physical um uh, body movements towards other people. So. Absolutely. That's so true. And it's so important to think about that. And anyway, I'm super excited about starting this journey. And I'm really happy that I got to talk with you about some of your exciting adventures and yeah. ideas and advice. Thank Looking you. Looking forward. All right. Here's well, to the journey, buddy. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. I hope you all have a great day. Thank you. Bye. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us on Shira's Journey Podcast. You'll find extra info and links in the show notes. Also, please make sure to visit shearsjourney.com where you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS. While you're at it, if you liked our show, we'd really appreciate a rating on iTunes. And it would be great if you tell a friend about us too. Thanks, Harrison. You know, I couldn't have made this happen without the encouragement and support from my tribe. Special shout-outs to the one and only Tiffany Rochelle Stewart. You only get to do a first show once, and she will always be my first guest ever. To my fearless production assistant, the superstar Shiro, who does more than you can imagine, Emma Bird. To the fantastic Tord Funk, who composed the original music for my show. Hey, fun fact, we opened a Tony, Tony, Tony show together back in the day. I swear, it is true. Also, big love to Michelle Levine, Elsa Sykes, and Christy Prather Skinner. And of course, a humongous shout out to all the sheroes in the world and the people who love them. Keep listening, keep climbing those mountains, and slaying those dragons.